Hello, this is the UCLA Housing Voice podcast, and I'm your host, Shane Phillips. Our guest this week is Dr. Andre Perry of the Brookings Institution, joining us to talk about his book, Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities. As many listeners may know, homes in Black neighborhoods are consistently undervalued relative to their fundamentals and relative to homes in similarly situated white neighborhoods. And if you know that, you probably know it because of Dr. Perry's work. Know Your Price brings this research together with a much broader range of research and insights into how a racist society fails to appropriately value Black communities, businesses, homes, and ultimately Black people. We are a podcast about housing, and we believe very strongly that better housing and land use policies can help solve many of the problems we face as a society. But this conversation is an important reminder that there are limits to what policy can achieve when some people are seen as inherently less valuable or as unsafe places to invest public or private resources simply because of what they look like or where they grow up. In this episode, we talk about black home ownership, inequities in appraisals and lending, and plenty of other housing-centered topics. But the biggest takeaway is the importance of investing in people. And Andre Perry does an excellent job of making that case in this interview. The Housing Voice podcast is a production of the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies, with production support from Claudia Bustamante and Jason Suteja. As always, feedback and show ideas can go to me at shanephillips at ucla.edu. Now let's talk to Dr. Andre Perry. Andre Perry is a senior fellow at Brookings Metro, a scholar in residence at American University, and a professor of practice of economics at Washington University. He has many titles, and he is also the author of the 2020 book, Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities. And he's joining us today to talk about that book. Dr. Perry, welcome to the Housing Voice podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Looking forward to this. And Mike Lenz is my co-host today. Hey, Mike. Hi, Shane. Hi, Andre. Uh, Hello, listeners. Um, This is a a very, very special episode for me. As some of our listeners know, I've been working on a book on black neighborhoods. I, I hope to be sending that off to editors soon. And um, it is. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, Andre's work, not just in the book, Know Your Price, but his work with you know Jonathan Rothwell and others at, at Brookings has been very influential in shaping my thinking. Um, you know, I use some different methods uh, to arrive, I think, at, at, a, at some similar stories uh, as, as Andre and, and some of his uh, colleagues. So this is very exciting. I'm, I just noticed that over my right shoulder, if you look very closely, not you, listener, but if you're Andre, <laughs> you can see that the book is right close to me. So it's, it's here. Very good. Very good. Keep a keep a copy nearby. It's good for your health. Exactly. <laughs> okay, so we start each episode by asking our guest for a tour of some place they've lived. And Andre, I was hoping you could give us a tour of Wilkinsburg, Pennsylvania, where you grew up. Know Your Price starts in Wilkinsburg, so that feels like an appropriate place to kick off our conversation. Yeah, Wilkinsburg, Pennsylvania. It's a small uh, majority black pot, uh, city or borough surrounded by Pittsburgh on three sides. And for most of my life, I never knew where Pittsburgh began or Wilkinsburg ended. Um, it was all kind of blended in this community. But 
uh, it, it was a great place to grow up. I I was born in 1970s, so growing up, I was right smack dab in the throes of the departure of U.S. Steel. They started to pull mm. out of the city. But growing up in Pittsburgh, it, it, um, Wilkinsburg, I should say, it was great because um, on the main drag of Penn Avenue, you had all the stores and shops any downtown would have. In fact, a lot of people, when they said, are you going downtown, they would think of Wilkinsburg and not of, of Pittsburgh because you had department stores, you had the, the, the pet shop, you had shoe stores, magazine shops. It was just a thriving, budding neighborhood. And I, in the book, uh, Know Your Price, I narrate my runs. I ran cross-country in high school and in college, but in high school, I would run down Penn Avenue. And you would always, I would, uh, after school, I'd run past all the shops. I'd see my fellow students uh, working in stores. I'd see parents of my friends shopping. Um, and then I would pass the EBA, the East Busway. It's a, a, a bus station above ground there. So we had a transportation hub. I passed the hospital. And oh, the only reason I knew I was coming closer to Pittsburgh, the city of Pittsburgh, is I could smell vanilla wafers because there's a <laughs> Nabisco uh, cookie factory uh, near the, the border of, uh, of Pittsburgh and Wilkinsburg. So when I could smell cookies, I knew I was really getting close to Pittsburgh and the, the neighborhood's really indistinguishable. They, they, we looked like each other because uh, it was still a majority black place. I run back and all is good in the world. Uh, you, would, you would run back without finding a way to get the cookies, though? That, that <laughs> seems like a big challenge. Man, I know. Uh, I, I, I try to stay fit the entire time, so... <laughs> Our cross country coach would not allow us, but no, um, no Nilla wafers in no during Nilla training. Wafer. Yeah, <laughs> but now I run that same route when I go back, and there's just not the hustle and bustle anymore. Yeah, there's the stores. So many of them are boarded up, but the ones that do exist are the typical cash checking place. You know, mm. the dollar store maybe. The, the you could just see it's it just doesn't have the same verb as it used to, and now as I approach Pittsburgh, um, I don't smell cookies, but I do see a lot of white people, mm. uh, because <laughs> now where the Nabisco cookie factory used to be, it is now Google headquarters, wow. and so yeah. it's, it looks very different. Um, than it did before, where I didn't know the difference between Wilkinsburg and Pittsburgh. Now you see a different type of vanilla wafer. Uh, you see <laughs> much more, uh, 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 many more white people as you uh, enter Pittsburgh. And it's buzzing. It, it, it reminds me of what Wilkinsburg used to be. And a lot of activity a lot of quote-unquote placemaking has occurred. You have new housing, you have recreational activities, you have bars, you have shops. And then, you know, you run, run back in majority black uh, Wilkinsburg and you don't see any of that. And so for me, a lot of my work is to understand how assets in black communities are devalued. 
um, because you should see the same hustle and bustle in Wilkinsburg that you mm. do in Pittsburgh, but you don't. And I, and I argue that it's really because of the black population is detracting um, investment in those places. Mm. That's a great introduction. And getting into the book, there's a statement that you repeat throughout. There is nothing wrong with black people that ending racism can't solve. And it feels like that's in some ways the thesis of your book. For those who haven't had the chance to read it yet, what are you communicating with that message? Tell us about the perspective shift that you're asking the reader to make with that statement. You know, growing up in Wilkinsburg, all I heard internally and externally is how bad people living in Wilkinsburg was. Well, once I was in college and, and I told somebody I lived in Wilkinsburg and they said, oh, you live in Wilkinsburg. Mm. Um, there is a, a lot of crime there, uh, higher crime. Uh, it was uh, when I was in high school, but there was this fundamental belief that people caused problems. Mm -hmm. That if we could only, in, in many ways, my work in education, I, I used to hear a, a, another way of saying that. They would say, if we could only fix the schools, everything would be all right. And that's to say, if we could only educate uh, these kids, be, uh, the, the world would be a better place. And so, uh, in addition, you know, many of us in, in grad school uh, got to read the Moynihan Report, uh, the the monumental report by Patrick Moynihan. And in it, he did a lot of structural analysis in there, but he kind of had a conclusion that if black women weren't poor, uh, everything would be a, a lot better. We got to you got to make sure we fix this whole single family marital thing that which is causing a lot. Why don't they just choose not to be poor, essentially? That's exactly right. <laughs> right. That's exactly right. right. Yeah. And so, so many of our policies really take that perspective that it's the problem of the person. It's personal choices that dictate the overall conditions. Now, I certainly believe that choices matter, but I never lose sight of the, the policymakers whose choices are scaled at a level that a single mother would could never impact. Mm -hmm. And so right. my my whole point of there's nothing wrong with black people that ending racism can't solve is to point to policy. Yeah. And and if it, and if there's any person, let's look at policymakers. But it's really, you know, I say I don't blame people. I blame ideas. I blame policy, because if we can change policy, we can really change behavior. We can change outcomes. But for me, it all starts with policy. And the subtitle of your book is Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities. And since this is a housing podcast, we're going to spend plenty of time on the property side of things. But we also don't want to move past black lives too quickly here or pretend like you can appropriately value black property without valuing black lives as well. Your book came out six days before George Floyd, a black man, was murdered by a white police officer. And as we all know, months of protest followed all around the world, and probably the most recognizable slogan or declaration of that time was that Black Lives Matter. That message and the movement for Black Lives obviously predate 2020, but there's a, a clear parallel here between it and your call for valuing Black Lives. And I was hoping you could just talk a bit about that relationship at a high level, but also where Black property fits into all this, if you could. 
Yeah, uh, a lot of people know me from my research on housing devaluation. Uh, my colleague Jonathan Rothwell and I have been looking at this issue since 2018, and we released a report during that time that found that homes in black neighborhoods are underpriced by 23%, about 48000 per home. Cumulatively, there's about $156 billion in lost equity in black communities. And, and I always tell people that that $156 billion um, amounts to more than 4 million businesses based upon the average amount black people use to start their firms. It would have paid for more than 8 million four-year degrees based upon mm. the average amount of a four-year public education would have replaced the Pikes in Flint, Michigan 3,000 times over, mm. would have covered nearly all of Hurricane Katrina damage, and it's double the annual economic burden of the opioid crisis. It's a big number. Wait, wait. And so, so when, well, when people talk about black communities, they're always talking about what, uh, the people in it. And I always say that that's why I always say there's nothing wrong with black people that ending racism can't solve. We need to look at the policies and, and practices that extract wealth every day. And at the end of the, at the end of the day, property is not devalued. People are. Mm-hmm. It just comes out of the wash in home prices because as soon as white people move in, to a community, the entire market shifts, right? It, you, we see the potential. We see increased demand for services. We see a new era. And But for me, I, I wanted to make clear, uh, people think when they pick up this book, it's a housing book because they think, of, oh, Andre Perry is going to talk about devaluation. But it's really about how people are devalued and how it shows up in different sectors. And by the way, housing impacts so many other areas. So if you have lower home values, you have less equity to start a business. If you have lower home values, you have less resources in schools. If you have lower home values, you have less political power. Mm -hmm. There's so many different connections between housing and other areas. And that's what I wanted to make clear in my book. So sticking with the housing side a little bit more, you know, I think a lot of our listeners are pretty familiar with the ways black neighborhoods have been devalued throughout our past and present and what some of what the legacy uh, costs of this history are. Can you get in a little bit more more about some of that history? So practices like racial covenants and redlining urban renewal and disparities in home appraisals that, you know, continue with us today and how these things relate to this concept of devaluation? Yeah. So I I did not mention how I started looking at particular cities in my book. One of mm-hmm. one of the things was my own city of Wilkinsburg, Pennsylvania. And, you know, how I ended up there as the story was told to me is my mother or the person I call mom made a deal with my maternal grandmother that she would take me in at the time because my mother um, was poor. She already had a child when she was 15. She had me when she was 17. And so mom did what a lot of black women did at the time, just taking kids. Mm -hmm. Now, my father at the time, he was a heroin addict. Um, He was incarcerated for most of my childhood. He ended up getting murdered in jail in in, mm. uh, in a prison 
right outside Detroit, Jackson State Penitentiary. And so for my book, Know Your Price, I started looking at the areas where my father and mom lived, Right. Um, historically speaking. And what I found was that they lived in areas that were redlined, where the, the federally backed um, home uh, owners, loan corporation drew red lines around those areas, deeming them unworthy of, of many of the refinancing opportunities at the time. They um, lived in areas where uh, that there was an unfulfilled promise of urban renewal. They lived in areas where they were displaced by uh, highway um, mm-hmm. construction. They were surrounded by racial housing covenants, mm-hmm. um, so they couldn't necessarily leave those areas. And so that history compelled me to look at home prices um, in those areas. Uh, and so that's when we started digging in say, hey, history and policy matter in, in these cases. Um, when we looked at home prices, we, we certainly controlled for education, crime, walkability, all those fancy Zillow metrics to come up with that 23%, 48156 billion. But um, before that, if you don't control for anything, homes in, in black neighborhoods are underpriced by 50%. Right. And that's largely because of the policies that have impacted the market in those places. Now, I'm, I'm currently involved in a, a little bit of an intellectual battle uh, regarding my research, actually, because I do say demand is a factor in my in in home home prices. I mean, for me, it it's not the the factor. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think a lack of demand is the reason why you have lower prices. I also think there's this bias in various structures, right? But I also believe that those biases compel people not to invest in those communities, not to live in those communities. Mm-hmm. That's why in many cases you see very good structures just abandoned, you know, yeah. in, in certain in certain areas. But for me, that history is absolutely important. I don't think you can come up you can actually correct housing discrimination without having some uh, reparative type of approach to addressing past inequality. Like we're not going to wave a magic wand and raise home prices. That's for sure. Um, Because you would hurt the people living in those homes. They'd be pushed out ultimately um, in those areas. So for me, it's about how do you repair? How do you repair incomes? How do you repair the wealth inequalities? How do you repair educational systems? How do you restore the value that's been extracted by racism Mm. over time. You know, I don't talk a lot about reparations in the book, but I do mention that there needs to be a reparative culture that Mm. goes along with our our fixes to housing policy. Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. if you're not dealing with the reparative, the the past, you're really never going to deal with the present. I I pretty obviously agree with that. Um, I'm also glad that you got into some of your biography there because I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, you know, how you used multiple methods in, in this book, right? I mean, it, from from my reading of it, you're a social scientist. You pull a lot from, you know, social science of, of yourself and others. You use a journalistic style, I think, in some, certainly in some 
parts of the book, you know, you do a lot of interviewing of local experts in education, healthcare, economic and community development. But this book is often very autobiographical in places. And, you know, I think it's both a very powerful biography in my view, but one that, you know, is also all too commonplace in in our culture. And I certainly read echoes of my own family in that biography. How did you kind of decide to write the book in this way? And, you know, what were some of the challenges in using such a multi-method approach? Yeah, it was challenging. I work in a think tank where research is the coin of the realm, research and policy. And oftentimes those things aren't accessible to everyday readers. I mean, most of the research or reports we put out, you're, you know, you're really talking to a small subset of <laughs> yes. uh, America. And so I wanted to write something that translated the reports that we do to everyday people, first and foremost. But I also wanted to break down some of the myths around researchers in general, that we're disconnected and we're Mm. removed and we're dispassionate observers of phenomena. No, we're we're highly involved. And for me, I'm I'm... biased in that I live in black communities. Much of the policies that were enacted against black America, it affected me. I cannot deny these things. And I really wanted to show everyday people that we are a part of it. If you are living in the suburbs and you constantly are voting a certain way around education policy, you're part of the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, in your analyses, uh, and if you're a researcher, if you don't put your biases up front, we consider that bad work. I encourage a lot of my colleagues um, in Brookings and in and, and, and other think tanks and other areas to show, okay, where do you come from? Because that informs a lot of your work. Yeah. Whether you like it or not. Now, we, we have methods to uh, mitigate our personal bias, but, you know, our framing of the issue, a lot of it comes from our backgrounds and how we spent our lives. So I wanted to also to say, hey, I'm a part of this. I'm in this. Now, I, I, I tell a very sympathetic story in that I was informally adopted by an older woman. My father was... Uh, incarcerated and was murdered in prison. And so I have a very sympathetic story. But I still want people to understand that researchers are people, mm-hmm. that we're not disconnected from these these issues. The other thing is, I also wanted to have a redemptive story for my father, for my mother. You know, because for so much of my history, it was your mother made bad choices, your father made bad choices. Mm-hmm. And after reading this research, doing this research, no, um, my father should be doing this podcast with you right now. Mm-hmm. I literally share intellect, I share genetics with him. Yep. We grew up in the same types of neighborhoods, yet he is murdered in jail and I'm not. Now, um, some people say, oh, that's, you know, how are you so different? No, I'm no different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm no different. Literally no different. 
Um, there's thousands, millions of people snatched up by racism every single day who should be someone's fellow, senior fellows, who should be a professor, should be um, a bus driver, should be a teacher, whatever. But they're gone yeah. because of these structures extract wealth and opportunity from our communities. And then finally, I wanted to tell a story of other people. You know, I, I do think sometimes it's a little bit uh, narcissistic to dwell on, 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 on a person. So I also wanted to share other people's stories. And so that's where a more journalistic lens. But I think it was difficult at times to blend research, hardcore research, biographical and, and autobiographical narrative. But I really think I did a good job because it's who I am. I'm yeah. all those things. You know, I am a, I mean, I'm a writer, I'm a thinker, I'm a doer. Um, I, and I wanted to convey the multiple ways people communicate. And and I think, yeah, I think I yes. pulled it off. I think <laughs> I pulled it off. You're calling here for valuing homes in black neighborhoods at their appropriate worth, which is to say their value, if not for the influence of individual and systemic racism and bias. And one thing you note, which has come up already, is that we wouldn't want to just wave a magic wand and increase the value of devalued neighborhoods, you know, 25 or 30 percent immediately. That would price a lot of people out, especially renters. And so there's a need to do this with care. And what we're really talking about here is how do we do, how do we grow, how do we invest without gentrification or without, you know, a lot of the negative things that are associated with gentrification, you call for a more iterative process of restoring wealth without displacement. And that sounds like a great framework for thinking about solutions. And I was hoping you could dig a bit further into those details. Um, what does or what should the process of restoring value and wealth to black neighborhoods look like? And while we're on that subject, I'd love to hear about your work with Stuart Yasker on the Valuing Homes in Black Communities Challenge, if there's anything you can share at this stage. Yeah, um, I, I generally think there's three approaches to restoring value that's been extracted by racism. And and again, it has to be done in an iterative way. And this is how I, I, some of the things in general, I think, need to happen. You have to uh, essentially restore value to people directly. You got to, quote unquote, cut the check. You got to get a homeowner or down payment assistance to potential homeowners. You need to get tax credits, microloans to homeowners. Um, we need to figure out ways to get loans to business owners. You know, one of the the most important side effects or negative effects of devaluation is people have less discretionary income to put towards their home or to their communities. So you got to figure out a way to restore that value directly to people. And I emphasize people because there's always a lot of emphasis on investing in place and the brick and mortar and the, and the infrastructure and mm -hmm. in, in, in buildings and, and such. The problem with if you only invest in place, you'll eventually uh, increase property values and people won't be able to keep pace and then they're ultimately pushed out. So you got to invest in people, but you do have to invest in place simultaneously because of devaluation. You know, beautification is, a, a, is an issue. Infrastructure is waned. And so you do need to invest in the physical 
properties of a particular neighborhood. Yeah. And from your book, it feels like Pittsburgh is sort of the example of the place that went, you know, pretty all in on placemaking, but not so much on the people themselves. That's exactly right. Uh, I'm always saying that placemaking is a is a you know verbal waffle there because you don't have <laughs> to make places; they already exist, right? Mm. That um, it's really about who are you going to make places for, and yeah. oftentimes we make places not for black people; we make mm-hmm. it for other folks. And so, for me, you know, I, I feel that we do need to invest in. Wilkinsburg. We do need to invest in the structures, but you got to invest in the people, the longstanding residents of Wilkinsburg, figure out ways to to create more homeowners, business owners and the like, and, and reward the people who've um, stayed in Wilkinsburg for a long period of time. The third uh, piece of this is we need to divest from racism. And let me explain, you know, much of the the problems that have been highlighted by my work is in the appraisal industry. Now, we mm-hmm. we looked at home values, and this has always been a, a very difficult thing for me to describe, that I actually think we do ourselves a disservice when we blame all of the devaluation in Black neighborhood, pin it all on appraisals and appraising. It is not just appraisers and appraisals that's the problem. That we know that lending is a problem. We know that steering is a, still a problem. There's, you know, underwriting is a problem. All these things matter. And so appraisals and appraising, appraisers and appraising, I should say, are right there, but they're a factor. <laughs> now, it's a factor we need to divest from. In particular, the price comparison approach it's fraught, you know, the, the approach where you compare one home to another in the neighborhood to get a sense of price. The, the reason why that's fraught is that if you compare one home to another in a neighborhood that's been discriminated against, you mm-hmm. effectively re- recycle discrimination over and over again. You never get out of it. And so for me, we got to divest from that model. We, we, I do believe in more automated valuation models using AI and, and technology to, to figure out more ways. I, you know, I remember a time I couldn't catch a cab in New York and D.C. and parts of the area. And then Uber Lyft came along and all of a sudden you saw taxis wanting to go to those areas. Now, there's some a lot of negative that have occurred because of Uber and Lyft. So we also need to be mindful of te- tech. And there's also still discrimination with Uber and Lyft. But I think, you know, to That's your right. point, it, it does represent, I think, for most people would say a step forward in that regard where the discrimination is not as bad in the same way as, you know, loan practices are better than they used to be in 1960, say, but there's still a long way to go. It's not to say that yeah. this improvement is the last step. And and AVMs, as they are called, they also can scale bias to, to a degree that would be even more harmful right. um, because uh, software developers share the same biases as, as appraisers. <laughs> um, but I just want to make two points on that is that uh, there's a lot of emphasis on a uh, uh, the workforce in terms of not very diversified, 95% of appraisers are, are white, 75% are male. So we need to diversify that workforce. With that said, 
if you diversify the workforce and you still use the same practices, you're going to get similar results. So that goes into my um, partnership with Stuart Yasger and Ashoka on the uh, valuing black home or homes in black communities challenge that we uh, we just completed this past spring, where we sought innovations stemming from local innovators from local communities who are dealing with devaluation to offer up their products in terms of new mortgage products, uh, new ways to value homes, um, new policies that they were suggested. And what came about of that, we gave away hundreds of thousands of dollars to these innovators who eventually produce a suite of ideas that really represented the range of ways we need to address um, housing devaluation. And this is, I mean, it's weird because in so many ways, the uh, social justice community, they love me. Like, they love me. But <laughs> then I say, hey, we can't just blame one sector. We can't just, you know, you got to show that this is systemic. And there's, there's multiple enemies here. And I, and I go back to this. I don't blame people. We, mm-hmm. we do right. It's a lot of people acting on the incentives that our policies have yep. created That's for right. them. That's yeah. right. And I stay true to that. I really stay true to that. I don't want to attack any one person, even an occupation. I want to look at policies. So mm-hmm. I think what that challenge did with Ashoka and Stuart Yazer, it really gave us a suite of ideas that ran the range of issues that we need to address in order to affect housing devaluation. Can you talk about any of them or any at that stage where they're, yeah, they're well, acting or they're... Yeah, we saw new um, a um, interesting... Now you caught me off guard, but because I always forget the, <laughs> the innovators' names, but I'll share some of the products. We certainly see, saw community land trust uh, models that were promising these ideas where you could separate the land from the, the, the physical property to um, make housing a, a more affordable. We saw um, new mortgage products, new valuation systems. We saw a new shared equity approach where people um, who owned a home where the, the tenants could then partic- share in the equity that was developed mm-hmm. from it. Um, so just new community ownership models and new policies around preventing devaluation. So for, for folks who want to check it out, Google um, or whatever search engine you use, um, hit up Andre Perry and Stuart Yasker and Ashoka uh, valuing black or black, homes in black communities challenge. And you'll learn a lot about the innovations that we found. Cool. Hot off the presses. Yes. So in the that last answer, you know, something that I heard there and I know you've talked about in the past is there's there's sort of a destructive cycle or circle going on where perception drives reality. And what I'm basically getting at is that there is a belief and, that you know, because of racism, essentially, there is a belief that assets and people in black neighborhoods are are not as valuable. And that perception, because people act on it by not moving there, by not opening, by not going to the businesses there, et cetera, 
that actually does make them worse investments in objective terms. And so you have this reinforcement where the belief that these neighborhoods are lower quality or whatever actually affects the revenues and the outcomes for the people who live there. And so how do we, you know, this is a very big question, but how do we break that cycle, that connection between perception and reality where the two are reinforcing one another? You know, the only way I know how to break those perceptions is by investing in black people. You know, when people get the returns, when they see the returns, that mm-hmm. they will realize, because ultimately I, I study underappreciated assets, you know, meaning if you add water, it will grow. And for me, when we add the water and you see the the growth in community, that changes perception. But uh, because nothing grows without investment, you know, mm-hmm. perceptions don't improve, the communities don't improve. So me, it's if we recognize that there's devaluation. We have to then say the first order remedy is investment because sort of you have to you have to take the leap. Basically, you have to take the leap. That's exactly right. Um, If you see that these structures have impacted behaviors, information flow, perceptual stuff, then you got to disrupt it and take that leap of faith. And so Mm -hmm. um, that's what I believe in. And there's. You know, it's, it's just hard to say, but but we take leaps for other people all the time. It's funny. We have moonshot ideas. You know, what's the Holmes woman where people gave billions of dollars uh, to the woman who, is her name Holmes, the... Uh, the one oh, Elizabeth the, Holmes. Elizabeth. I think, or no, is that an actress? Yeah, no, <laughs> but the Thanos person, whoever that the is. Thanos, yeah, 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 there you go. Yeah. Theranos you know, would be good, but Theranos. Theranos, Theranos, Theranos. 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 She just, she just got uh, sentenced, right? Or yeah, I think, got, I think yeah. someone did. She, yeah, she going away for a long time. But just think how many billions of dollars we give for ideas, you know, that may be sound, but they're, you know, they're not proven to be solid assets. We know that in black communities, we have homes that are much more valuable than their price. We know that we have firms that are much more valuable than they are invested in. And so why not invest in those things? And we also see it in this regard, in the whole whitewashing experiments. It's, you know... Can you talk about those briefly? Yeah, whitewashing is where people, particularly when they're getting an appraisal for refi, they detect that the original appraisal they got was low. So then they remove all the black art, the black books, the clothing, the hair products, the cocoa butter, whatever it was in there, replace all those out and then replace it with white facing things. So, and then they get a white stand in to play the role of the owner when the second appraiser come. And what happens is, and what you're seeing this all over the news, the, the second appraisal comes in hundreds of thousands of dollars higher. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, you know, there's no real reason that should happen. <laughs> like, no, except you believed in that person. You believed. Yeah. Racism. Yep. It's like, <laughs> you know, I'm like, wow. And you did not believe. It is such a good illustration of the person side of this, though, because the... Nothing has changed about the building. 
it is in the same neighborhood, the same, you know, all the other neighbors could be white or black or, or whatever. And yet just changing the person changes yeah. the value for that appraiser. Absolutely. And, you know, and I, and I'm also um, very cognizant that when you're trying to change perception, it's going to be hard. It's going yeah. to be very hard because these tropes are so stuck in our mind that we should not go to that school. We should not go to that neighborhood. We should not go here. And then there's a tight market and then you have little options and you say, well, maybe, and particularly young people, that's what they do. Maybe I can live in the black neighborhood. Then all of a sudden you see potential. You start investing in that neighborhood. You see, you know, you start getting axe throwing uh, uh, places and, you know, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is the new hot neighborhood. And, you know, and it was all about perception at the end of the day. So for me, um, we got to figure out a way to take a leap of faith and believe in people. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's what we got to do. I want to stick on homeownership here for a minute. So in the U.S., there's a roughly 30 percentage point gap between the homeownership rate for black households and for white households. And you do call for more homeownership incentives to address that huge disparity. And it's a disparity that has persisted for, for generations. You also frame homeownership as a sort of interim step in the process of appropriately valuing black homes and neighborhoods, since rising home values won't displace homeowners generally, unlike renters. I know you're very familiar with the research showing that, you know, black households get worse mortgage terms than similarly situated white households and buy homes in neighborhoods that appreciate less rapidly than whites. And my understanding is that there are also timing issues where households of color tend to buy disproportionately later in the economic cycle so that they gain less equity on the upswing and are more at risk of going underwater on their loans when prices fall. None of this is the fault of black homebuyers, and it all seems to go back to your declaration that there's nothing wrong with black people that ending racism can't solve. But I'd be interested to hear your reflections on the importance of homeownership for black households, some of the risks and nuances we should keep in mind when pursuing or pushing for more homeownership, and what it's going to take for black households to benefit from homeownership in the same ways or at the same scale as white households have, or if that's even possible. Yeah, uh, I have a lot of mixed reactions um, um, to that. First and foremost, I'm never, I never forget that for the descendants of the enslaved, ownership means something different. Mm -hmm. That mm. having control of yourself, your, you know, your personhood, and just a little space to call yeah. your own, it means something different. Um, we had Daniel Lee from uh, Culver City at an event a few years ago, and he made this exact same point. Yeah, it stuck with me as well. Yeah, yeah. And so there's, you know, we want the American dream more than anyone else. No question mm -hmm. about that. And with with that said, the way that racist housing policy has worked over the generations, we also have to find alternative means to building wealth in this country. We need housing for two different things, shelter and wealth development. In some markets, it's going to be very hard to get into. The housing market 
if we don't change the very nature of a home of ownership, it has to be different. It just has to be different. And so for me, I want alternative forms of ownership, but I also want new forms of wealth building in this country. Mm-hmm. You right. know, my, my colleague Derek Hamilton and his baby bonds idea, I think is yep. very important because the idea that, Every generation will have the ability to pass on um, significant sums of wealth through housing. You know, I just don't believe that's always going to be as consistent as it was over the last, um, at least since um, homeownership started. You can't have home values doubling every generation in real terms. At a certain point, housing is all you're spending your money on, right? That's exactly right. You just can't continue at that pace forever on that trajectory. That's right. So, but for me, housing and ownership is important because you want to be able to predict where you're going to go to work, predict where you're going to go to school. You want adequate shelter. You want these things. And so we need alternative forms of wealth building as well. Right. And, and again, I want to be clear to all the listeners. I'm not saying home ownership isn't important. It is vitally important, uh, but we also need to understand that we need alternative forms of, of a wealth building, another social safety net than we did in yeah. the past. Another way of thinking about that is perhaps homeownership has become too important, or at least this this single form of homeownership that we that is really the only option of ownership is too important given the extreme barriers to entry into it and the big uh, downsides of getting it wrong, right? If like all of your wealth is tied up into your property, that's a little bit too, if all, all of your wealth plus all these other things that you just listed, you know, your your access to your job and your schools and et cetera, et cetera, like maybe that's just too big of a, a thing in in, you know, our our lives and we right. and I think I think if we can make some of these community ownership shared equity type options more ubiquitous to where it's not just you're a renter or a single homeowner right. like then we can diversify you know this this type of asset diversify people's assets yeah you know another thing this is going to get very macro and and too heady but I, I do a lot, here for. yeah I do a lot of this work about increasing ownership not just with homes and businesses and I also don't want to replicate the very push that you know wiped out one Native Americans and this this idea that property owners can demand everything control everything mm. um, for me it's always been about power and voice I think power has you gain it. You can gain a, a, a semblance of it through home ownership, mm-hmm. but I really do feel that you should have power if you're not a homeowner. Mm-hmm. You should. Yeah. You have voice if you're not. And so I'm always just figuring out. Hey, is the goal to, you know, give everybody a home, or is the goal to give everybody power? You know, right. and and an opportunity to, to make a way, or more opportunities to make a way to pass on wealth and opportunity to their children. And so for me, 
Yeah, I, I just I, I struggle at times because I also think we fall into this idea that we should be creating housing for wealth purposes. And for me, no, we should be creating housing because for shelter, for yeah. Yeah. Um, for the other reasons I described. The distinction I've been making lately is sort of like going back to the days when owning a home was more a question of, of security mm-hmm. than than wealth. And security maybe implies some level of wealth. Um, but if you own your home and you're, you know, secure there, but you also have baby bonds and these other means of investment, maybe you don't need to rely so much on on the value of the home itself to kind of make right. sure you have resources for retirement and so forth. And it's sad, though, that as we've been talking about, home ownership is so tied to all these other things is that if you don't own a home, if your parents didn't own a home, it's more likely that you're going to have to take out student loans to go mm-hmm. to college. It's more likely you're going to have to take out business loans to start a business. And so it disadvantages people. And so my my other quest is to figure out ways so that if you don't own a home, you can still go to college for for, for free. You can, well, you know, not for free, but you still have the means <laughs> to go to college. Mm-hmm. You can still have the means to start a business. You can still do these things. And so that's where the challenge is for me. Early in the book, you discuss how researchers often spend too much time comparing outcomes for black households and black neighborhoods against their white counterparts. And you argue that we should spend more time comparing black neighborhoods to each other, learning from the most successful black neighborhoods and applying their lessons elsewhere. To you, what does it mean for a majority black neighborhood to be successful? And in the work you've done leading up to and following the publication of the book, what are some of the characteristics or trends uh, or practices that you've seen associated with successful majority black neighborhoods or cities that you think hold promise for other places across the country? Recently, through a partnership with the NAACP, um, my writing partner, Jonathan uh, Rothwell, and I, we created the Black Progress Index. And it's an attempt to do very that, to compare outcomes, in this case, life expectancy between black people in different places. So anyone can um, look at their county or metro area to look at life expectancy in, the, in, in those places. But what we did, we, we looked at the social determinants of health. We used a machine learning um, algorithm to find the 13 most impactful indicators on life expectancy. And a lot of them are not surprising. Income, home ownership, environment. Um, there was there were some surprising things. The percent of black immigrants uh, was a, a strong predictor. Religiosity um, was a negative predictor. The, in terms of church memberships was a negative predictor. But we did that because when you compare white people to black people in the aggregate, you miss all the progress that is being made at the local level. You know, so what I try to do is to show that there's progress occurring. And yes, in the main, overall, in the aggregate, black home ownership is 30 points lower. But in places like Prince George's County, uh, places in in Virginia, um, home ownership is much higher. And we should look at what did people do in those places to make those things happen. 
Yeah. What, um, and so for me, the reason why I say let's not always compare black people to white people is because one, that exercise masks the real progress and change that's occurring. And two, I also think it, it leads to uh, black people not being invested in. When, when black people are at the bottom of all of these metrics, are we are perceived as problems to be fixed. Mm. Right. And, and investment doesn't go to problems, they go to solutions. And that's why you see in education and all these other areas, um, we giving resources to white teachers or white saviors to fix black problems. Um, mm. And that's true in a lot of other ways. So for me, I, I think that there's a lot of unnecessary comparing between races, when you look at within group, when you do within group analyses, you really do get a better sense of what's going on um, across the country. Mm -hmm. uh, so, Andre, this book discusses multiple examples of black devaluation in other contexts. You know, of course, as a housing podcast, we've talked a lot about housing, but you also cover health care, economic development, education and, and politics uh, at a minimum. And I think one of your really important insights is that a consistent thing that gets in the way of Black uplift is that we do not trust Black people to help themselves. In community and economic development, white-owned or led entities and initiatives are funded to kind of fix Black spaces and problems. In education, the research consistently finds that Black teachers are crucial to Black student outcomes, yet we all often fix black schools by firing black teachers and administrators. What are some of the recommendations that you make to put black people in charge of their own problems and solutions? Yeah, and this is something I, I wrestle with. I have a, I'm writing a book, a new book called Black Power Scorecard, in which Ooh. I try to measure power in different domains in different cities. And this is a, and what we're having is a power discussion. I don't think, you know, this might be very pessimistic of me, that lack of trust in black people isn't going anywhere. Mm -hmm. This is about mm -hmm. demanding what you deserve. You know, I, I named the book Know Your Price based upon my favorite play in the whole wide world, Two Trains Running, by August Wilson, the great August Wilson from Pittsburgh. And in the play, the main character, Memphis, is about to have his property seized through eminent domain by the city of Pittsburgh. They offer Memphis $15,000 to which the owner, um, and to which Memphis says, no, I'm not selling my property for $15,000. I got my price. I know my price. I'm paraphrasing. But it's, there's a refrain throughout the play that suggests, no, I, I, I got my price. I know my price. There's another character, Hambone, in the play who agrees, makes a deal um, with a proprietor that he would get a ham if he painted the fence, the storefront fence. Um, he paints the fence, but he never gets his ham. And throughout the play, you hear, give me my ham, give me my ham, give me my ham. And we don't know if, if he had, ham bone had uh, mental health issues before he painted the fence, but he eventually goes mad and dies demanding his ham. Now, there's a moral to the story. Oh, I'm sorry. I forget the most important part. 
the the main character Memphis after saying no I got my price I know my price he gets thirty five thousand dollars for the property eventually it's assumed he's getting market rate or the white rate mm. and the moral of the story is you got to know you have worth you got to know you have value what I try to do is give people the price to stand on now a, a caveat to this is there's two one I want to get a place where we don't have to sell our property. Um, we're not forced to sell. I also don't want us to go mad demanding our work. That's mm-hmm. where organizing and collective power comes in. There are lots of people dying, demanding their fair share. They're, they're losing their minds, literally losing their minds from demanding what they deserve. I think there needs to be um, a, a serious conversation about organizing in this community. When my book came out, it was in the throes of the 2020 movement. And I don't think I would be talking to you today if it, if I did not release a book during that period. Um, you know, that demand led to Biden administration recognizing the work. It led to them instituting PAVE, the Property Appraisal Evaluation Equity a Task Force. That's impact right there. Impact. You know, multiple state, local ordinances, mm-hmm. um, but it all comes from demand and it comes from organizing. So I think, I don't think anyone ever is going to give us respect, the respect we deserve. I do think when we organize and mobilize, we get the change we need. And so for me, that's what I'm, that's what I'm working on. All right. All right, Andre Perry, this has been a pleasure. Thank you for coming on the Housing Voice podcast. Hey, thanks for having me and look forward to hearing more episodes. Cool. You can read more about Andre's research on our website, lewis.ucla.edu. Show notes and a transcript of the interview are there too. The UCLA Lewis Center is on Facebook and Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips and Mike is there at MC underscore Lens. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.